You're listening to the Ancestral Elements Podcast. I'm your host, Travis Gray. Join me as we cover topics about nutrition, health, and lifestyle so you can have ancestral health in a modern world. This episode is brought to you by Ancestral Elements Supplements. With the changing seasons and the gathering together around the holidays, make sure your immune system is built up and protected with the Bear Clover Tincture. It's now 30% off through the entire month of December, so if you're looking to keep you or your loved one's immunity protected this winter, check out the Bear Clover Tincture. Go to AncestralElements.com, navigate to the Supplements page where you can find more information on the Bear Clover Tincture and Colostrum and Liver Supplements. Now, here's the episode. Hi and welcome back. This is episode 53 of the Ancestral Elements Podcast. Eating with Ego. The Evolution of Dietary Dogma. All right, on this episode, I want to explore concepts around the ancestral implications of certain diets, whether it was through dietary restrictions or practices, not only from a health standpoint, but a social and community standpoint. It's really easy for us when we look at diets and food through a modern lens and outlook to correlate diet with health. But it's important to realize that not every diet began with the intention of health. The purpose wasn't for nutritional health or longevity. A lot of times, diets were created for social structure and social separation in some cases. And I'm going to give some kind of historical context to this. But this idea that a lot of times the found, the very foundations of quote-unquote diets or dietary practices don't have foundations in health. And being that a lot of these, especially historical dietary practices and guidelines, were rooted in more social and community-based intentions, it can lead to unintended downstream effects. And I'll get into more of this later on in the episode, but a lot of times when, especially when you do really restrictive diets, it can lead to very significant genetic consequences, generations down the line. Okay, so I want to start out by taking you guys back to church. If we go back to the Old Testament, to the third book, which is Leviticus, Moses and leaders of that time period, started laying out dietary laws for the Jewish people. And this is where kosher or halal dietary guidelines come from. They come from these Jewish laws that were documented in Leviticus. And to give you guys some context around why these dietary laws were created to begin with, it wasn't necessarily for the health of the Jewish people. See, the Jewish people of that time period were just coming out of slavery. In the book of Exodus, that's a book about a people that were enslaved and breaking free from that slavery. And so by the time you get into Leviticus, you've caught up to a people group that have been freed for 40 or 50 years, something like that. No one really knows for sure, but that's a general kind of time frame. So this is a community that has to set themselves apart from their kind of slavery past. And one of the ways in which they do this is through food and dietary guidelines. You have to remember that this was a people group that felt that they had a birthright, that they were a special group. And in order to set themselves apart, they couldn't act 
like everybody else acted. Meaning Leviticus specifically is a book about social construction, social order, constructing social order around community, around this specific Jewish community. It's about laying out these laws and social orders to separate from the Gentiles. So you have the Jews and the Gentiles. And so these food laws kind of encapsulate that because the moment you start separating yourself from people through the use of food, it's something that people can really grab onto because everybody eats, everybody eats food. And so if you can set up a social order around specific foods that are quote unquote unclean or unfit to eat, then people can really relate to that. They can understand that very contextually and very tangibly. And this is what is laid out in Leviticus. Obviously, this took years and years to lay out. It didn't happen all at once. And it was a gradual process of kind of layering laws upon laws. These were actual laws. If you broke these kosher laws, then you could be fined or imprisoned. And really, you would be kind of ostracized from the community because you would be considered then unclean. And these laws got pretty extreme. You couldn't even go into the household of a Gentile if you were Jewish. You weren't allowed in there. You would be breaking the law and you could be sentenced to prison. So these laws weren't about health, especially when you're thinking about their dietary restrictions and laws and guidelines. It wasn't about health. It was about separating themselves from the people that enslaved them, which really makes total sense. I mean, I think anybody could kind of draw that logical conclusion that, man, we don't want to be just known as kind of an enslaved people group that got free. We want to establish our own identity, our own principles. You know, that was the mission. And I think that's totally legitimate. There's nothing wrong with that. And there's definitely nothing really wrong with, you know, sticking to kosher principles. There's some great principles in there. And whether they knew it or not at the time, these dietary principles and guidelines were not only going to shift them on a kind of socioeconomic level, but a genetic level. And we'll dive into more of that later on. But it's an important thing to realize that this started out as a social kind of economic putting your foot down, but it led to significant genetic changes for the Jewish people. So when thinking about kosher, we often think about, you know, not eating pork which is one example. So any animal that had split hooves or didn't chew a cud, so it wasn't a ruminant animal, didn't have multiple stomachs to ruminate plant material, was considered unclean. Now it's been theorized that pork specifically was considered unclean because it could potentially cause trichinosis. Um, whether or not that's true, it's up for debate. Um, it could be the case, you know. But there was a lot of other animals that were kind of off the table. Any swarming types of animals, so insects especially with multiple legs, were off the table. Except, interestingly enough, crickets and grasshoppers, which at the time were massively abundant. Um, and I think if farming went awry, they were foods that people could turn to for extra nutrition and protein. So interestingly enough, those were left on the table. Anything that crawled on its stomach or slithered was off the table. And I won't get into kind of all the nitty-gritty details on this. There's a lot of butchering practices that also kind of regulated um, that you must bleed animals out. You can't drink the blood of animals, which was a very common practice back then. So 
things of that nature. And if you want to go through all these, check out Leviticus and you can get all the dietary guidelines that they had laid out. So all this to be said, this was to set them apart socially, communally, which is what a lot of diets do. Even if they are based on kind of health and not so much social or economical, they tend to set people apart. I mean, think about the diets today, right? Especially the restrictive diets or really extreme diets like veganism or carnivore. Those end up developing their own communities and often they're at odds with one another, right? It's two polar extremes. See, the thing about kosher is it didn't limit any kingdoms of life. You were able to eat from every kingdom. So animal, plant, fungal, bacterial, protist. It covered all of them. What it did limit was certain species within those kingdoms. It was actually a lot more balanced than the extreme diets we see today. But this carried out generation after generation, led to epigenetic and genetic changes within the Jewish people. And you still see it today. If you measure the microbiome of Jewish people versus non-Jewish population, it's vastly different. And Jewish people tend to have their own genetic diseases. And often, this is associated back to Leviticus with these dietary rules and guidelines. And so there is a generational shift as far as genes and epigenetics goes for the Jewish people as a consequence of this social kind of dietary separation that they chose to do that nobody could have seen back in the days of Leviticus. And it's important to realize that now, you know, in this day and age, most non-Orthodox Jews don't follow all the dietary guidelines that were laid out in Leviticus. You know, most abstain from, you know, pork and certain foods, but a lot of it is way more flexible than it used to be. Now, some Jewish people still do practice all those very rigid laws, and they actually have more genetic disease than the Jewish people that are a little more flexible with their dietary guidelines, which is an interesting thing to kind of look at. Now, if you flash forward to the book of Acts, which is the New Testament, an interesting thing kind of happened. There was this guy, Simon Peter, often referred to just as Peter, went to a house. He was hungry. There was food being prepared in the kitchen. So he decided to go up onto the roof to pray. And as the writer talks about, he fell into a trance. Or in some translations, it's translated to he found ecstasy. And ecstasy in the Greek language can be translated to an out-of-body experience or a change in your normal homeostasis. So ecstatis is basically a change in your normal state, your normal being. So whatever he did to find <laughs> ecstasy, I don't know. I mean, I typically don't go up on rooftops and find ecstasy too much unless I've uh, taken some pretty good plant compounds, which there are plenty of plant compounds he could have taken, potentially. Um, the writer didn't uh, let us in on uh, if he had any uh, kind of pre-prayer preparation. Or maybe he was just extremely hungry and tired. I mean, you can get into some pretty weird states if you've uh, fasted for a long, long time. But anyway, that's kind of beside the point. Anyway, this vision he had, it was God coming down with a sheet with all these unclean animals 
that the Jewish people weren't allowed to eat. And he said, if you're hungry, go kill and eat. He had to do this three times. This kind of vision occurred three times because Simon Peter kept denying it. He said, well, I'm a good, holy Jewish man. Like, I'm not going to eat unclean animals. And he challenged his God, um, which is interesting. Um, eventually, he accepted this. And basically, at the end of the scripture, he ends up going into a non-Jewish household. He crosses the threshold into a Gentile's household. And he sees people sitting around, gathering in community. And he says, the law forbids me to be here. I'm basically, I'm not supposed to be here. And you know that I can get in trouble for doing this. Like he was still kind of grappling with this idea that he can eat these unclean things and that he can associate with Gentiles. So in other words, what I'm getting at is it was a break in his kind of consciousness that took him out of the social order, took him out of the social structure. He himself, at least Simon Peter as the individual, got to a place in his life where the social order no longer was serving him. And whether it was food that got him out of that, we don't really know, but it could have been. What I'm saying is food can get you into social orders, social dogmas. It can wrap you up in kind of an insulating, restrictive paradigm. And food can be expansive. It can be ecstatic and open up the world to you, depending on how you're viewing it. Are you picking up what I'm putting down? Is this making sense? So food put him in a restrictive paradigm and his hunger for change, his hunger to expand his community, to expand his worldview, got him out of that. And whether it was food that did it or plant medicines that did it, we'll never really know. But food has the power to impact social order and community. Food is extremely intimate and powerful because everybody eats, right? Everybody understands you need food. And that is a really easy way to set yourself apart or to broaden your horizons with a larger community. So you either segregate or you integrate when it comes to food. I mean, obviously there's variation, but that tends to be the extreme segregation or massive integration. You either get restrictive with your diets or you remain really balanced with your diet. So with the story of Simon Peter on the rooftop finding ecstasy, escaping his normal state of being, it opened up his worldview, his worldview on food and who he could socially associate with. But even he was kind of confused by the experience. It clearly took him some time to kind of integrate those ideas that he had in his altered consciousness into his body and into his way of being. That's the thing. Anytime you have disruption of environment like that, whether it's internal or external in the larger socioeconomic environment, it's going to take time to integrate. And you can have some kind of weird ideas that come out of that. There can be a lot of creativity and great ideas that come out of a disruption of environment like that, but a lot of weird ideas. And so the job for you as the individual when looking at the nutrition landscape is to be able to put it back into context. You need to put the nutritional landscape 
into an ancestral context that's rooted in your biology and in the real world, in ecology. And that's going to take all the guesswork out of these weird novel diets that have come out of a very disrupted modern environment. And like I said, with regards to you know, eating kosher and their strict dietary guidelines, it wasn't necessarily a bad thing, nutritionally or socially, to set themselves apart. I think for that time period, it accomplished exactly what they were hoping it was going to accomplish. But there gets to a point where you outgrow the form that you've been working in. Just like a plant outgrows its pot, right? You get root-bound if you stay within the same structure for too long. If you, It doesn't allow you to grow. And so being able to let go of your dogma when it no longer serves either you or generationally down the line is the key to all of this. In other words, if the diet that you're eating only serves you in your lifetime and has detrimental, deleterious effects to your kids or grandkids or generations down the line, then that is not a sustainable diet. That's a diet where you're eating with ego. You're only centered on yourself. You're only looking at your own health and not considering long-term effects. It's ego is what it is, not health. I don't think any parent I don't think any parent would choose to be eating a diet that they knew would cause harm in either their children or grandchildren. But yet, it's happening all around us, every single day. And that's largely not down to the individual and their choices. I mean, it certainly is an individual choice, because no one can tell you what food to put in your body. But these diets are socially constructed more so than they are health-constructed. And the long-term health implications of the socially designed diets aren't considered very often. You basically have two choices when thinking about an overall diet that you're going to consume. You can either be individually fed and take care of your own needs and choose to not think about the long-term generational consequences of that diet, or you can be generationally fed and provide longevity through the generations and set the future generations up for success, as well as your individual needs in the present moment. These extreme diets that we're doing right now in the population, whether it's vegan or carnivore, those are the two probably most extreme. There are some other ones, but those are good examples. We don't know the generational impacts of those diets. As a matter of fact, when it comes to vegan, there's been many studies to show deleterious effects generationally, meaning children fed a vegan diet don't grow as well and develop as well, neurologically, anatomically. So that's a diet that is focused more in the ego than in sustainability through the generations. And same thing could be said for carnivore. That's a diet that's focused more in the ego than sustaining generational health. Now, both of these diets could potentially sustain generational health, because if you fix your health with an extreme diet, that's totally fine. But eventually, an extreme diet is like that pot-bound plant. It doesn't allow for growth or sustainability. You'll outgrow that dogmatic dietary approach. That's what extreme diets are. They're dogmatic dietary approaches. 
And if you can't get out of that, then it's going to have harmful effects for you and future generations. Do you see what I'm getting at? You have to be able to move past these ego-driven dietary dogmas that are so easy to fall into because there's industry developed around them now, not necessarily laws like there was in Leviticus. We're not going to get thrown in jail if we're eating meat, if you're vegan, or eating vegetables if you're carnivore, right? But there's social implications. You'll be ostracized from the vegan community if you start touting the benefits of animal food. And same thing goes for an extreme diet like carnivore. If you start touting the wonderful benefits of fungi and plants, which there are many, you'll be kind of laughed at. And, you know, people just say they're toxic and you shouldn't be eating them. So ultimately, structure can be a great thing to kind of jumpstart the process of exploration. It can give you a guide, right? Just like a foundation of a house gives you a footprint to build on. So can these types of dietary guidelines. But you can't become so dogmatic in them and entrenched in them that you can't move past them. And that's really kind of what we're seeing today. It's either blatant disregard for diet, or a lot of times it's extreme in its approach. And those things don't serve either typically the individual health for long term or especially the generational health. You know, if you can heal some specific problems on an extreme diet, I'm all for it. And that's what they should be used for. They should be used as a reset to kind of help your body get rid of and heal whatever is going on. And in that instance, they're great, right? Just like a kosher diet being a separation of identity and kind of social order was a great thing for the Jewish people. There can be great use of a vegan or carnivore diet or keto or Predikin diet or Atkins or whatever label you want to put on it. There's good intent there, but it's got to be used wisely and you can't live by it and die by it because ultimately it's not going to work. It's not sustainable, not generationally. We need to be thinking about generational health and feeding our bodies for future generations. That's where your diet should come from. That's the starting point. That's your foundation, which is why I'm always advocating for a broad kingdom diet. So eating all five kingdoms, as many species as you can fit in, that's going to set you up for individual health and generational health. But you have to think about these things when thinking about food and dietary choices and preferences. If you don't, if you're getting dietary advice that hasn't considered these things, it's bad advice. And it will lead to epigenetic and genetic changes within the community. And you see that with the kosher diet. Jewish people have very high rates of certain genetic and epigenetic diseases directly related to their microbiome. See, when we talk about the microbiome, which is all the species that are inside your gut, so your bacterial species, your fungi species, your archaea species, your protist species, your viral species, all of those things help break down food into metabolites to be used as cellular energy for your body. And the moment you start limiting entire kingdoms of food or species of food, you start degradating the microbiome. And it might be fine for 
a generation or two or even three. But when you start stacking up deficiencies in the microbiota generationally with many, many generations, then it can start changing the genetics of that people group. And that's what you see in certain Jewish populations where they've remained kosher. There's distinct genetic mutations that have occurred as a result of eating kosher. Things like PKU, which is a phenylalanine amino acid imbalance that can cause things like anemia and it can cause mental instability. It's often diagnosed in infants. Um, they have to be really careful about the amino acids they're getting in because they're lacking the enzymes. And as I've talked about in many other episodes, enzyme regulation starts in the gut. It starts with your diet. And if you are chronically eating foods that don't promote enzymatic breakdown of nutrients, then you're going to become deficient in enzymatic breakdown eventually because you're not going to be feeding those pathways, those metabolite pathways. The Jewish population in general also suffers from things like Crohn's and cystic fibrosis, which are inflammatory disorders, again, directly related to the microbiome, because the microbiome is inherited. It's passed on through germ cells, which are sperm and egg. It's passed down generationally. So again, you start depriving yourself of certain foods without really understanding the balance of what you're doing to your body, it will impact generations down the line. Now, these some, a lot of these diseases can be corrected if put on a specific diet, but some of them can't. Some of them are fairly detrimental that are passed down. And this happens with every culture. It's not just the Jewish culture, but you can see a pretty clear-cut delineation of when the Jewish people started implementing these dietary guidelines, and then what it's become thousands of years down the line. What I'm getting at is what's going to happen thousands of years down the line to people that have perpetuated something like veganism or carnivore. We have no idea what types of things can pop up as a result of promoting something like veganism or plant-based diets, especially when industry and industrial processing is now involved. I mean, again, the kosher diet is a pretty well-balanced diet. They just cut out certain species, and that still led to some genetic issues that people are battling with right now as a result of coming from that generational line. It's something to think about. That's why if you can keep as many species in your diet and as varied as you possibly can throughout the years, the more protected you're going to be and the more protected your future generations are going to be. I hope that makes sense to people because the more diversity you can get housed in the microbiome, you're going to be passing that broad spectrum of microbiotic activity to your offspring. You're going to be feeding a robust sweet to your kids, to your grandkids, and they're going to have better health as a result of that, of your dietary choices. And that's not to say that a very narrowed species diet or an extreme diet isn't useful in the short term. It absolutely can be because a lot of times what those extreme diets do is they actually suppress the immune system and give your body a chance to kind of process through what it needs to process through and let things kind of heal. But staying rigid in that isn't good for your overall immune system and overall cellular health which then tends to degrade your genetics. 
degrade things like your methylation pathways and acetylation pathways. And it essentially leads to chronic inflammation passed down generationally. And that's exactly what we see through a lot of the Jewish population. Chronic inflammation being passed down via the histamine pathways. So you get clinical symptoms like Crohn's, which is inflammatory bowel disease, or things like cystic fibrosis, which develop on the lungs or the intestines, right? These high inflammatory diseases being genetically passed down, predisposition to these genetic diseases. A lot of that results in changes in the histone proteins that change the way your DNA and RNA and that whole kind of transcription process and the way things multiply and divide and the way amino acids get synthesized into proteins. If that gets dysregulated through diet and environment, then it'll turn into genetic disease. That's what genetic disease is. It's a dysregulation of epigenetics of these methylation and acetylation and phosphorylation pathways that we get from our food that we're taking in, which, you know, clinically kind of can be seen as a lot of times inflammation because that's how the body kind of responds to that. It's a histamine pathway. That's kind of our main detox pathway and, and main really nutrient pathway that everything kind of filters through. It's a actually an ancient kind of bacterial pathway, an enzymatic pathway. It's called a histidine pathway. And if that gets messed up, you can see how digestion and metabolism through the microbiome gets very dysregulated. And so if, a lot of times a disruption in that pathway will result in kind of just chronic underlying inflammation. And that's what we're seeing primarily clinically through the population is a lot of people have chronic inflammation and organ systems aren't and cells aren't operating optimally. You know, if your body isn't operating optimally, it's going to hinder reproduction and it's going to hinder those germ cell lines when a sperm and egg meet. I mean, you can only, you can only pass down epigenetic and genetic information that you have, that your body is regularly patterned in using. That's what you're going to pass down. And so if you're eating a diet that doesn't promote healthy genetics, that doesn't promote longevity through generations, that get passed down from your metabolism, from the metabolite breakdown that your cells and body use, you're going to have detrimental effects. And that's what we see with a lot of diets. A lot of diets are just focused on individual health. A lot of times just, you know, weeks. You know, people will get on a diet for 30 days and expect to have some long-term result. It's ridiculous. It makes no sense. That's a crutch. And really, it's a crock more than anything. It, it's a joke. I mean, it really is. Because people aren't thinking long-term. They're thinking about individual needs and what's good for me must be good for you. But that's not true. People need to think in larger terms. And that's a hard thing to explain to people and have them really understand, you know. And if you've had your kids, if you're done raising a family, and then, man, what an opportunity to teach the younger generation, whether it's your kids or grandkids or great-grandkids. Learning this stuff is always useful, independent of life stage and age. It's always going to be beneficial. So you can pass this stuff down. You know, because if you can shore up somebody's basic dietary needs 
as a child, as an adolescent, they're going to be far better off into adulthood and have a much easier time as they grow and develop. And then they can pass on better habits and traits. And this thing will start to gain momentum. Food, again, can either be suppressive and insulatory and separatist in its nature and therefore be detrimental epigenetically and genetically to you and future generations or can be expansive and and it can incorporate and integrate ecology so so that your epigenetics and genetics can be balanced and you can pass those down through germ cell lines to future generations. That's the difference. So, I mean, all of this to be said, there are always, always going to be long-term unforeseen consequences as the result of your own specific dietary choices. You can choose to make that as good as you can, or you can choose to ignore it completely and it's a roll of the dice. You know, obviously, nobody can determine the outcome generations down the line. But if you're not thinking about this stuff, when you're incorporating foods into your diet, then you've missed the point of changing your diet, and you've missed the point of eating. Because this is the point of eating. It's to perpetuate health through the entire species and through generations. That's why we're all here. We're here to procreate. We are biologically designed to have children and to give them good health into the future. And I don't want to make it sound like there's no protective mechanisms that go on when you conceive, because there are protection things that happen in utero, in development, where it can change some of those genetics and kind of regulate and balance things out. There are protective measures that a body goes through during development to kind of inhibit some deleterious effects that may or may not be passed down. So it's not like eating one wrong food is going to cause a whole landslide of issues. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is you need to be cognizant about the food that you're putting in your body, potentially affecting generations down the line. And we're starting to see a breakdown of this. And we're getting weird diets that are misaligned with that mentality. And that don't make sense anymore. We've gotten very egotistical when it comes to our food and it comes to our diets and our eating patterns and behavior. And it's time to rethink this. So the more you can think about feeding yourself for the generations, the better off you're going to be. And the way you get there is through a balanced five-kingdom diet where you're eating all kingdoms of life, and you're getting a lot of varied species within those kingdoms. And, you know, I've talked about this a lot in the past 52 episodes. So if you're confused by any of this, or this is the first episode you've listened to, go back and you'll be able to pick up on what I'm talking about here. But this is how you do it. And this is why I've kind of curated this dietary approach. It was curated not only for you as an individual to bring you health, but it was curated to support generational health. That's the whole point of this. This is where ancestral eating meets nutritional genomics. This is the whole point, right? Ancestral eating on its own, I don't even really know what that means. Like People ate differently all around the world. Sometimes it ended up being really good for generational health, and sometimes it didn't end up being good at all. Sometimes it was very destructive and very unhealthy. 
But without the generational and genetics piece, it falls flat. And people don't have any context or don't have any anchor point to it. And so people just think, oh, well, it's in the past. You know, what's good then isn't good now because the environment shifted. Yeah, and some of that's true. But giving genetics ancestral context promotes longevity and generational health. Or to put that a different way, in the past, take the Old Testament, for example, they were very connected with their food, connected with their environment. They were breeding plants. They were doing animal husbandry. They were fishing. They were hunting. They understood the relationship between food and how it made them feel and how it either helped or hindered future generations. This was understood. And we've kind of forgotten that in a way because we've reduced everything down to these kind of clinical lab values that are pretty abstract and don't have any real ancestral context to them. And so by understanding that ancestral foods and incorporating ecology and some ancestral practices back into your modern life, it will set your individual biology up to thrive into multiple generations, not just your own. Our biology doesn't do well with very new technologies and new foods and unrecognizable nutrients that are coming in and being broken down as metabolites to feed our bodies. That's not what our body thrives on. It doesn't thrive on kind of ultra-processed, industrialized foods, whether it's meat or plants. So this idea of putting some ancestral context back into your diet simply means eating foods that our bodies can recognize and utilize that feeds our biology through the integration of recognizable foods and environment. And that sets your body up to pass down strong epigenetic and genetic traits. You can't just eat for your individual needs and expect to have really good generational outcomes down the line. So to kind of sum things up, ask yourself, why are you eating the diet you're eating? Are you doing it for some type of individual outcome? For your health, like losing weight or managing type 2 diabetes? If so, great. But move beyond that question to, is this diet going to support long-term generational health and not just my individual health? And if the answer is no, or if you're unsure, then you need to figure out what needs to be done to support longevity through the generations. If you ask yourself, why am I eating the diet I'm eating? And the answer is because it provides me with community or some type of social status or structure, then you need to make sure that that diet is well-balanced and serving you and not extremely dogmatic in its approach. And if it is dogmatic in its approach, can you recognize the fact that maybe at some point you're going to have to move on from that community when it no longer serves your health. And you could possibly lose those connections depending on what that community is all about. If you're eating a diet for that, strictly for that, then you'll want to somehow fit health into that equation. But often a social kind of designed diet isn't really going to have a lot to do with health. If you can answer those questions through a diet and what you're eating, then that's going to be a sustainable diet, not just for you, but for multiple generations down the line. And that's exactly what we need right now because generations are getting sicker. And that's not a good thing considering the state of the world and affairs right now. And really, to everybody out there listening, 
it comes really down to diversity. Diversity within the five kingdoms of life, diversity within the species, and diversity from interactions in your environment. The more diversity you can get into your body through food that you chew up and swallow or absorb in through your skin, like sunlight, synthesizing the vitamin D or infrared light, managing your endocrine system or mineral absorption through your skin, whatever it is, the more variation, the more actual diversity, not just phenotypic domesticated plant diversity that we'd love to talk about, but species diversity that you can get into your body and integrate it into your biology, the healthier you're going to be and the healthier your generational line is going to be. You know, again, base your dietary choices off of thinking through this entire thing. Because honestly, most diets don't think this far ahead, unfortunately. I mean, I've been in this space for over a decade now, and most diets don't think about long-term generational effects. And it's a mistake. So start thinking about it a little bit more. I think that I've come up with a fairly decent solution based on current literature surrounding the microbiome. And basically, the more diversity you can get into your body, the better off and more robust your microbiome is going to be. And more of, and the more of that you're going to pass down generationally through that germ cell line I was talking about. That's the basic premise here. That's all it is. That's what I'm working with. I could be wrong. I'm not saying it's a guarantee, but this does work. And I've seen this work in people's lives. So if you're searching for examples of diets that can provide you with long-term generational health, this is the place to start. Start by getting the most diverse species that you can in your diet and going outside and interacting with your environment and ecology. And you'll start to see things and connect things together that other diets really don't do. So really, if you're in some weird, rigid, dogmatic diet, be aware of that. It's okay if you are, if it's serving your health. But be aware that you're in it and be aware that you're most likely out, going to outgrow it and that you're going to have to come up with something that is more balanced. And that's what I'm trying to do here. That's what I've personally arrived on. This is the dietary practices and ideas that I follow. And so if you're searching for something a little more balanced, a little more concrete, ancestrally, biologically, and generationally, this is the place to start. I don't have all the answers, but it's a starting point. All right. I think that's going to do it for this week. Thank you so much for listening. As always, I will be back this next week for another episode. Get outside, eat a five kingdom species varied diet, and I'll talk to you guys next week. Thank you for listening to the Ancestral Elements Podcast. If you like what you're hearing, leave me a rating and review. This will ensure that people can find the podcast so that we can grow the audience, and it will help me secure guests for future episodes. If you have suggestions on what you want to hear on upcoming episodes, go to AncestralElements.com and leave me a comment. I would love to hear your guys' thoughts and inputs and answer any questions that you may have. 